Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In the first century BC, the philosopher Athenodorus was looking for a house to rent in Athens. He found one at a remarkably good rate, given how large it was, and he soon realised why. On the very first night he was working late, when a ghost appeared with a long beard and bristling hair, clanking its iron fetters. The ghost led him outside and indicated a spot in the courtyard, and the next day, when Athenodorus had the spot dug up, his men found a pile of old bones. And after the bones had been laid to rest, the house was haunted no more. Tom Holland, that is a great story, isn't it? It's a fabulous... Pliny. Isn't it from Pliny? It is, the younger Pliny. Um, but I remember it from um, childhood. I had a the bumper book of bo- ghosts, and that was the very first story in it. And it had a fabulous um, black and white illustration of uh, Athenodorus and the ghost with the manacles and the beard creeping up behind him. So I, I remember it very, very vividly. Um, and ghosts have, have always... I, I've always loved stories about ghosts. Um, and in fact, over the course of the lockdown... One of my activities was to go on ghost hunting walks across London. So I did two Fine. huge walks, you know, up to the tower, across yep. London, back down again. And I went right, right the way up to um, Highgate Cemetery, which boasts perhaps the most haunted uh, road in Britain. It's got the Highgate vampire. It's got a kind of strange psychic blob that creeps up on people and then leaps away. Um, all kinds of terrifying things. But at the top of... Um, at the top of, uh, of of that road, there is Pond Square, which boasts okay. perhaps my favourite ghost of all time. Pond Square is where Francis Bacon, in 1626, attempted to deep freeze a chicken by killing it, plucking it, gutting it, and stuffing it with snow. So you remember that story, and, and, and Bacon gets he, he gets a chill and ends up dying. And so people always remember Bacon, but they don't remember the chicken. <laughs> it's the chicken it's the chicken haunt the area well nothing nothing was seen or heard of it until the Mysterious. second world war when firefighters reported seeing a large bird unable to fly because its feathers had been plucked running round in circles and pathetically flapping the stumps of its wings it is still occasionally seen dropping out of the sky with a squawk it is <laughs> always it is always shivering Wow. Tom, I don't think we're qualified to pronounce <laughs> on the supernatural. I mean, we're barely qualified to pronounce on the natural. Um, That's true. So I think, uh, do you have a guest for us today? I do. And I have the best guest we could possibly have. It's Roger Clark, who wrote what I think is the best book on ghosts that I've ever, ever read. And it's a book not just about ghosts, but about the history of ghosts. So absolutely perfect. Ghosts and Natural History, 500 Years of Searching for Proof. And I read it this Christmas because obviously at Christmas you should read a ghost, a book of yeah, ghost stories and things. And, um, my wife had bought a, um, a kind of, you know, the kind of chair you get in a gentleman's club. She bought it on eBay or something. I put it in front of the fire, glass of sherry, Roger's book. One of the great, great reading experiences of my life. And we'd begun the podcast then and I thought we have to get him on and we have to talk ghosts. So Roger, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. And I, I yes, every day at five o'clock, I was sort of wrapped to see <laughs> which <laughs> peculiar story you would pick out. And, um, uh, yes, I, I, I do throw in a few strange ones. 
Well, there are so many peculiar stories, isn't yeah. it? Because essentially you, you are, but let's actually begin with a question which has been sent in by Rob Long. And he says, how much does background matter? Are British ghost sightings different, say, to French? How much do the events of the time seem to affect what people report? And that essentially is your thesis, isn't it? That mm. ghost stories evolve to reflect the assumptions and the beliefs and perhaps the tensions and the paranoias of the age in which these ghosts appear. Yes, and I didn't really realise this until I started reading the, uh, writing the book. And uh, I had this sort of childhood obsession with ghosts, and I wanted to see see a ghost. And uh, and then uh, as I went to university and so forth, I got rather embarrassed by my interest in it, and uh, pitched pitched the book. It got written, and I, I noticed there was a definite shift in what people wanted from ghosts, and um, uh, not so much do I, I found the question "Do ghosts exist?" not really very interesting. I wanted to find out what people wanted from ghosts. And I realized that as you could see definite shifts in uh, what pe the ex ghost experiences over the about every hundred years. And the other thing from my childhood is that uh, in the seventies is that, um, you know, we were the poor man of Europe. We were terrible at everything, but we were really good at ghosts. And, <laughs> uh, and, and we were the most. We were the most haunted country in the world, and it was just uh, <laughs> this was a marvelous and an involving thought. And so I, I wanted to go back and look at that. And why were there so many ghost books and famous ghost hunters in the seventies? I actually wrote them as a schoolboy, and um, got sort of involved in discussing ghosts. And that there were different kinds of ghosts. Clearly, I worked out there were about ten or so varying kinds of ghosts, um, and it all sort of went went from there and i i noticed that there was some spe specific issues about uh britain and england and the uk and it Im involved the you know the civil war and quite large quite a to quite a big extent the suppression of catholicism the comeback of catholicism in the 1780s and so forth and this fear of resurgent catholicism but also you know the sprinklings of sort of german German belief, which came in with the various members of the royal family, obviously all the Celtic stuff, uh, and it was a it's a very specific mix of of belief, and also we seem to have this specific idea of the sort of comfort uh, that ghost stories are sort of comforting, which is quite you know relatively unusual in in world in world culture. You know why would we? Why would we want to, to have this alarming subject so as a sort of comforting midwinter thing in particular? And if you were to boil it down, um, Roger, do you think that – so I find your book fascinating, and particularly the stuff about religion and ghosts, mm. sort of linking the two. I mean, you have a line in your book about belief in ghosts as a sort of um, decayed form of religion in mm. a secular age or something. But you talk a lot about the influence of the Reformation – so breaking with the Catholic Church yeah. and then the Civil War and so on. And do you think it's because of the Reformation that England, uh, England specifically, has this tradition of, of of ghost stories and so many kind of monks and nuns and sort of haunted Jesuitical figures and stuff like that? Yes, the the walled up the walled up monks and so forth. They're they're all essentially Regency off the what I call off the shelf ghosts, uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's the same with headless carriages and headless horsemen and that sort of thing. And again, with acephaly, the headlessness, you can go, goes almost straight back to, you know, the saints, the, 
the, the what do you call them, the cephalophores, the, the, the headless saints, which is a long tradition, as, as you both know. Uh, and, and I was very interested as to, you know, an Anne Boleyn being quite a, I mean, she's seen in popular cultures as sort of a bit, a, you know, a bit of a sort of dizzy creature. But uh, as far as I understand, she was quite a fearsome Protestant believer. And the idea that she would come back on an anniversary, a bit like a saint, she was almost like a saint's day, these anniversaries, uh, with her, with her head. And where was she coming from? Was she coming from purgatory? <laughs> Which is, yeah. uh, and yeah. if she was, that means that her whole belief system, if she was coming from purgatory, was incorrect. And for, for there was a, a, a while where to believe in ghosts, uh, marked you out as a, as a Catholic, which was a dangerous business. Well, so, so Roger, I mean, obviously there's an echo there of perhaps the most famous ghost in English literature, which is the ghost of Hamlet's father. Yes. Um, and that sense that, um, Hamlet, who studies at Wittenberg and therefore presumably is a, is a good Protestant, has as a father mm. a ghost who's in purgatory and who therefore presumably is mm. Catholic. Yeah. I mean, that's a kind of buried element of the play, isn't it? I yes. Think. And there, there's a lot of theories that Shakespeare was a, a secret Catholic and so forth, which um, I, I, I find quite, you know, sl- slightly convincing uh, in the same way that maybe M.R. James was had high church leadings that he wanted to conceal from his father which is why he didn't become a, a clergyman. And it, it's sort of, the, and you notice that a lot of M.R. James's ghosts are, are to do with pre-Protestant guardian spirits and, um, and so forth. Yeah. So M.R. James, for those listeners who don't know, is the sort of the supreme exponent of the classic ghost story, isn't he? He's writing at the sort of, mm. when's he writing? Early 20th century, I mm. suppose. But his stories are always backward looking, aren't they? They're, and they have that gothic element. Mm. Which I get, I get the impression from your book that you think you you think the gothic element in ghost stories. Well, well, yeah. I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth and say that you think it's fraudulent, but that you think you talk about things being folkloric. Yes. Um, which which you generally mean. I, I don't get the sense that you mean that approvingly, and you think that folkloric elements of a ghost story mean that it's as it were true. Mm. But you think that that's kind of people have brought a lot of baggage to the story, if you like. Oh, yes. No, I don't mean folkloric disparagingly at all. I'm, in, in some sense, a folklorist, you know. more. I think you tend to be, with ghost belief, a bit more on the folkloric side or the, the science side. And the science side has sort of reached a kind of cul-de-sac for one reason or the other. It was very active for over 100 years. And it's. I think we're now much more seeing... Uh, ghost stories and things as constructions of all sorts of complicated social mores. And I also talk in the book about the, you know, the British class aspect of ghosts. Uh, but going back to the Catholicism thing, I mean, you've got, you know, the birth of, you know, the castle of Otranto and Walpole is round about the whole time all of the, the, you know, the Catholic Emancipation Act and so forth were, were trundling through. There were several of them. And you can see this and this, you know, the Gordon riots and this genuine alarm that Catholicism, Catholicism was like crawling back out of the ground, you know, and, and would bring ghosts with it. Uh, and you, you know, you get, that's why you get these sort of spectral and satanic monks in Gothic literature. M.R. James, who's sort of my hero, um, very much disapproved of a lot of Gothic literature for one reason or the other. He thought it a bit distasteful. Uh, and he, what's interesting about M.R. James is he's routinely held up as our greatest ghost story writer, fictional ghost stories. 
and yet what he does is not actually traditional ghosts at all. They're either these sort of dead alive, medieval type walking dead. It was a, uh, a definite thing, uh, that, and the animated corpse or, or as I say, these kind of guardian spirits as a result of sort of versions of, of black magic and uh, occult practice. And so they're really not at all, you know, lonely spirits and things like that. They're quite, they're quite fearsome and, and inhuman and unpleasant. So before we, we start to look at in more detail at the way that the British understanding of ghosts has evolved from the Reformation and onwards, could we just broaden the camera back out again? Because you, you, you mentioned medieval ghosts, yeah. that, that they are kind of subtly different to the, the ones that we now know. Uh, and then, of course, before that, there's the example of the classical ghost. And from you know the story that Dominic narrated at the, the head of mm. the show, you've got clanking chains yes. and you've, you've got people who need to be buried. So there are clearly elements there that do feed into the kind of the mainstream. And also the, the, the Greeks and the Romans thought that ghosts vanished on cock crows and mm. that they appear at midnight and at midday and kind of various elements like that. So how, how different are, say, classical ghosts to the ghosts that we recognise today? And to what extent do those classical stories have an influence on the ghost story as we know it. If you go all the way back to this, you know, Sumerian dead and things, what ghosts were, were again, sort of half demonic. They weren't really quite people and they weren't really quite ghosts as we understand it. And this this idea of the hungry dead or the dead being unhappy about the way that they'd been buried, which is what you get in the, the Greek story you mentioned earlier, is like a, 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 an abrogation of burial procedure. It's very problematic for all of the archaic ghosts but as soon as ghosts are seen as sort of people, a bit like you and I, or the witch, so that, that didn't really happen until totally until the 1950s, where ghosts were just seen as people. Uh, they, you know, you get this gradual procession of very the this archaic idea of the the troubled dead, the unburied dead, who wanted proper observance made, proper burial made, uh, and then in medieval times, uh, you've got the the dead who were really just being prepared for the afterlife and were coming back to warn people to live better lives and uh, and to be and to be more well just to be lead better lives really and they were often warnings of their imminent death and they need to get their act together that sort of thing because my my um my my sense of say roman ghosts and for starters they don't really have a word equivalent to our ghost. I mean, they have kind of various different qualities of shade that that, that might appear. Some are some are, are you know, ancestral ghosts. Some are more malign. Mm. And then the kind of very weird one. So the the weird one I remember is um, Brutus, the murderer of Caesar, mm. on the eve of the Battle of Philippi, in which he, he will end up committing suicide. Kind of seeing seeing himself um, and said, you know, I, I am your, what is it? I, I kind of, I am your, your, your fate. I have come to, to warn you. And it's kind of, it's kind of a ghost, but it's not quite, is it? And I, I suppose you have the sense that we're dealing with, with things that kind of look familiar, but, but are strange in ways that we can't quite put our fingers on. Well, that story is quite interesting because one of the great revelations of the Society of Cycle Research, which was this incredibly august body created in 1882 full of prime ministers and poet laureates and uh, you know extremely eminent scientists some of whom went on to win Nobel prizes and one of the first things they discovered is called phantasms of the living 
the the most common ghosts were ghosts of living people or, or you know and and that people were still alive and this really threw the cat among the pigeons as the idea of what ghosts could possibly be um surely if they were still alive then they weren't ghosts in the classical sense there was some kind of other emanation uh, possibly to do with the science as le- as yet unknown which is where this whole science trajectory kind of began uh, and sort of ended re- relatively recently. I guess looking for, for, for science, you know, for ghosts that can be explained scientifically. Yeah. I mean, that is as much a reflection of our age as, you know, a Catholic ghost in Protestant England or well, you know, a Sumerian ghost in Sumeria. Also, about, I mean, battle ghosts and battlefields are famous sites, you know, for ghosts. It's like the, the Battle of Edge Hill and so forth. It was seen in the night sky, you know, afterwards and so forth. And, and this idea of prophecy and, you know, kingship and great men and, uh, uh, is, is all part of that romantic mix of power, I think. I've got a question, um, from the, the one of the listeners asked, just picking up on Tom's point about classical ghosts. I think we have a good time to do this. We'll also give Tom a chance to talk about his favorite subjects. Um, so it's about uh, the New Testament where Jesus says mm. he comes back and he says, I'm not a ghost. Um, is there any tradition of people thinking that Jesus was actually a ghost? Um, that actually, you know, the, 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 the fellow who pitches up after the crucifixion is actually not the reborn Christ, but is just a, a bog standard, you know, just an ordinary kind of Jewish ghost. Yes. I think Tom will know more about this than I do. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yes, I mean, uh, I've, I suppose you get into the whole matter of the Trinity and, and, and the Holy Ghost and how that fits in, which was, you know, has always been the result of some mockery from other religions, you know, to what extent, what is the Holy Ghost and so forth. But, um, yes, as far, as far as the Jesus resurrection, uh, I, I don't really know what to say about that. It was, uh, is he a ghost? Or he, but he's also all things at once, you know. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess the, um, the insistence that, you know, Thomas feel his wounds. Mm, exactly. The physicality of the body yes. is is set against a background of a world in which it is pretty much taken for granted that the dead can can rise up. Um well, well that's what- and you just have this incredible you know, in, in 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 the classical world you just have this incredible array of spectres, mm. every conceivable kind. And so it's really, really important, I think, for the uh, for the writers of the gospel to insist that he you know that the risen Christ is not one of these various spectres yes yes and i mean what's interesting is there clearly there's clearly the mortal damage there and yet he is somehow sustained uh, and may, maybe this is the basis for for like this great medieval tradition which mr james loved of of the walking dead the ambulatory uh, people who were sort of but you're right. I mean, Jesus was obviously a special case, so you can't you <laughs> yeah. can't really well. <laughs> e- extrapolate on general yes. ghost belief from from the, the well, I, Jesus. I, I think that's a, that's a perfect note, perhaps, on which to take a quick break. Um, Jesus was indeed a special case, <laughs> I guess. Um, and if we're talking ghost law, um, and maybe when we come back, we could look at some of um, the greatest ghost stories, ghost stories that that anyone with even the vaguest familiarity with the subject will know, Borley Rectory and so on, um, because your retelling of those classic stories is really quite something. So, guys, don't go away. It's worth hanging around for. Hi. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about ghosts with Roger Clark and having sort of faffed around with some Roman ghosts and with Jesus in the first half, we're now going to get stuck into some of the great classic ghost stories of sort of English, of the English folkloric kind of ghost tradition. So, Roger, why don't we start um, with one of the stories that you 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 kick off with in really in your book? It's the house that was haunted to death, isn't it? It's what's it called? Hinton Hinton Ampner. Yes. Hinton Ampner. Yes. I think it's a National Trust house now, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, it's got a modern, a relatively modern house that's burnt down several times. Uh, it's but, where the River Itchen arrives. Yes, and there was taken a, there by Fergal Sharkey to walk it. <laughs> Very creepy it was too. Yes, he's amazing. I, I follow him on Twitter. Uh, yes, it's, um, the, it, it was, it was really knocked down. It was considered to be so haunted that it was unlivable in. Uh, it was, and it was knocked down. I mean, but the, one of the interesting cases, well, one of the interesting aspects of Hinton is that there was a huge amount of written down family documents about it by people who were really not fools. And it, it has one, for me, one of the, you know, one of the best witnesses of any ghost case there, which is Lord St. Vincent, who later became Lord St. Vincent, who was the, the, the famous, famous admiral. Yes. And basically, you know, HMS Victory was his ship and so forth. He was the famous man who put down the spithead mutiny and so forth. He was absolutely the essence of no nonsense, you know, <laughs> naval authority. And he was just... And to the end of his days, apparently, he flew into a rage whenever the ghost was mentioned because he experienced it firsthand and could not explain it. You know, this was so. Give us the story. Give us some of the story for those listeners who don't know it. So, in the sort of 1760s, this woman called Mary Ricketts uh, rented a house with her children in Hampshire, 
Uh, and uh, went there, and her, her husband was sort of away on business in the West Indies, so she was very much on her own. She took her own servants down there. It was a pretty old, decayed house. And pretty soon, uh, nuisance started, which was lots of banging doors. And it seemed like people were coming in and out of the house, and nobody could work out what was going on. And the, the London servants all left, and there were problems keeping servants. And then there was, they put up a reward notice because they thought, you know, they're offering quite a lot of money, like a year's, year's, you know, laborer's wage, rural laboring wage for information on to who was breaking into the house. And it just sort of cascaded on and on and on. And these apparitions of, uh, of a man were seen around the house and then the sound of a woman rushing through and, and, and what we have is a first-hand, almost diary account from Mary Ricketts, uh, which is lodged in the British Library. And I've sat there reading this day by day, often day by day, account of trying to deal with what was going on. It's pretty much on her own and being terrified that her children will eventually see the ghost. So it's the opposite of a modern ghost story, where it's the children who see the ghosts and the adults don't. Here, the adult is trying to shield the, you know, the children from the ghost. And she, uh, a bit about Mary Ricketts, uh, you know, she was extremely well-educated uh, woman with a powerful intellect who was very highly thought of by a lot of members of the clergy who kind of came to her aid. And eventually they, they had to leave the house. They couldn't, they couldn't live in it and they went back after it. And there were all awful experiences. And midday ghost, ghost in the middle of the day and the door being banged. And I mean, it, you read about it and you see her handwriting deteriorate. It's really quite striking. And she eventually fled to the Bishop's Palace in, in Winchester, where she was sort of given sanctuary by some of her clerical friends. And that's how I think the story got eventually relayed to Bishop Benson, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who then told it to Henry James. Who, who turned it into, uh, in my view, it's the source story for Turn of the Screw. And I just actually found out something recently that M.R. James as an undergraduate actually went to stay with Bishop Benson uh, in the sort of um, 1880s and spent Christmas with the same Bishop Benson, who was then bishop uh, before he became Archbishop of Canterbury. And I, I, I have this sort of w lovely idea that maybe M.R. James was told this story and maybe he got um, first dibs on this story and turned it down. It's amazing that so that both two, James, James, yeah. Yeah. two people called James. Yes, yes. And <laughs> I, I, I can't help thinking that elements of, of his ghost story called Lost Hearts it may, it may have sort of some buried elements of Turn of the Screw. But um, I, I, I really wanted to crack the mystery. For me, that was a big mystery. What, what was this story that Bishop Benson told? And so, so what was going on? Because there is the Battle of Cheriton yes. in the English Civil War that is fought basically on the grounds of, of Hinton Ampner. So, well, there's this incredible sort of soundscape of this haunting. It's a very, very noisy haunting. And, and so there was this sort of, I think there was noise of really of the battle, which I think came up almost to the windows and the door of, of the house. And it was like it's being, it was being replayed really. But that wouldn't explain the people going. I mean, obviously no. nothing would explain it. But, no. but but usually when you have hauntings, there's some somebody comes up with some story to explain why it was there are these presences or what's going on. Well, is there any story? 
yes, there was various stories about uh, that um, uh, that there'd been an affair between a member of the household and a senior servant. It, again, turn of the screw, sort of thing, uh, and that it was probably they were probably the apparition scene. But I think this is what you'd call a sort of a multiple haunting that there are a lot of different ghosts doing different things, you know. Because it's unusual that there's... It's not quite a poltergeist story, is it? There's a lot of banging, but there's not stuff being thrown. Am I right? And the children who are often in... As you say, almost always in the classical kind of... In, well, what we think of as the kind of classic ghost story, mm-hmm. the children are can see the ghost or they're possessed mm-hmm. or they're somehow involved. But the children are completely oblivious. Completely is that right? oblivious. What's going on? And I, for me, that's such an interesting twist. It's completely opposite of how Hollywood tell us, would, would tell a story. It's actually much more interesting. Uh, and just this idea of this embattled woman. And I, th- I think it's a sort of, it's sort of like a house invasion story. It's like an aversion of a, of a violent house invasion. And I think that's, it's really the sort of, a, a bit like the Tedworth drama, I suppose, uh, which Tom knows all about having grown up near there. Yeah. So, so, so that's another poltergeist. Yes. And a poltergeist, I was intrigued. It, did I, do I remember this right? That, that Martin Luther is the first person to use the word poltergeist. He is supposed to have, have made the compound word, yes. Uh, first <laughs> to, so not only did he cause the Reformation, but he came up with poltergeist <laughs> too. So that's that's quite a roster of achievements. And there, when there is a strange connection between Germany and poltergeist anyway, and so you get before World War II, uh, people t- saying, well, of course, Nazism, fascism is there because it's all about noisy, inchoate spiritual forces. And of course, it would come from Germany because... It's like poltergeist central. Poltergeists, in a way, seem the, the the strangest stories to explain, but also the ones, perhaps because of that, that hold a mirror up most intriguingly to kind of religious currents. And you see that in the 17th century ghost stories, poltergeist stories like the Tedworth drummer. Yeah. And you see it in this one. Um, and you also see it in um, perhaps the most... <laughs> the most- fascinating of all the stories because it, it basically we know that it's a fake mm. which is the story of the cock lane ghost yes which features none other than dr johnson so can you just tell us a bit about that because that's a great story yeah so uh in the 1760s as well uh a uh a, cha- a chap and his wife came went to st- st- had nowhere to stay and they stayed with this family in cock lane and then they fell out with the family in cock lane and they uh, and the wife died, and suddenly this news came around that the wife was haunting the house and tapping out a condemnation of her husband that her husband had murdered her. Now the the husband was from a sort of educated gentleman class, and the 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 chap whose house he was in, the Parsons family were uh, were just you know were basically working class people associated with running the local, the nearby church sepulchers uh and uh it then he then realized that he could like charge money and it was all centered around the two little girls and they'd lie in bed and these knocks would come and they worked out you know uh certain amounts of raps for yes and one for no in fact i think it was the other way around unusually later on it became one one for no uh and people would come around and, and suddenly because there was a rather feverish atmosphere going on, because there was a lot of a lot of recently launched newspapers, there was a huge expansion in newsprint uh, and newspaper titles. 
uh, it became a sort of big scandal and people, crowds would gather hoping to hear the ghost and then members of the royal family would turn up like uh, in their coach to hear the ghost. And, and it became a sort of scandal because they had to work out, you know, are we going to treat this as a murder story and what's going on? And so it was sort of investigated and Dr. Johnson was on one of the teams investigating it and it, it pretty soon the whole thing fell apart that the, the father was a, a drunk and it was basically a sort of pub joke that went wrong. Uh, and, but the way, but everyone thought that they knew the real, it was a complete conspiracy theory. Everyone thought they knew what was really going on. Uh, there was a very sort of feverish, um, feeling. It was a lot of drunkenness. This is really a ghost story about the effect of drink and it's it's about gin isn't it they're all drinking gin they're all they're all absolutely bladdered on gin so and (laughs) and and in fact i discovered subsequent to writing this book there was also another scandal as a sort of uh in the pub another few doors down just a little bit earlier which was to do with uh, a kind of gay sex scandal and uh and so that that had also happened on the same street just really months earlier so everything was, everyone was just going crazy. Everyone, the Lord Mayor got involved. There was eventually a court case. It's a shame that, that it, it turned out to be a fake because I do love the idea of Dr. Johnson as a, a kind of ghost hunter. Agent Mulder. Yes. There's a great investigating ghost. There's a great series of novels in that or a sort of TV series. Dr. Hunter, Dr. Johnson, ghost hunter. Yes. He'd be waiting very, to be written. Well, there's this fantastic scene where he goes down. I, I mean, I live uh, in Old Street, not far from Clerkenwell. There's this marvelous scene of him going down the staircase into the crypt of uh, the church there. I think it's St. Anne's, I'm not sure. And because the ghost has promised to knock on the lid of her coffin in the crypt, and they're all there craning to hear, uh, and uh, nothing nothing happens. Uh, and interestingly, um, that area is also almost certainly where Swedenborg had his his uh, vision. Um, uh, it's also, it's just around the corner from... Um uh saint bartholomew the great the yeah. parish church that was founded originally as a priory by mm. rahir supposedly yeah. the um the jester of I... um of henry the first and apparently um some workmen in the 19th century were working on his tomb and one of the workmen stole his sandal mm. and ever since rahir appears on the day that his sandal was stolen demanding it back I've... So, so i throw that out i've tom i've heard that story in in a churchyard in moscow uh, and it's one of those portable stories. So Stalin had. I'm glad you've. I'm glad you've debunked Tom in front of all oh. our listeners. It's great. Anyway, can me we and just Dr. Un- Johnson both. Can we just unpack no, that? That was story so. Yeah. So um, the, yeah. The, the Cock Lane yeah. story, because there's a couple of elements of that that come up again and again in your book yeah. about ghost stories. One of them is the media, and the way in which ghost stories are, are literally mediated. Mm. And the other is technology. Mm. Because you talked about the new newspapers, yeah, and you talk a lot in your book about um, you talk about magic lanterns and about photography and X-rays and the cinema and so on, all in different ways, kind of seen as ghostly and involving, and and it's almost as though ghost stories. Well, it's obviously ghost stories take on the elements of the society they are yeah. about, mm. but there are particular things that come up again and again. So, do you think? Almost the the cult of the ghost story, if you like, or the or the or the the phenomenon of the ghost would be impossible without the kind of mass media and all that stuff. I I see it all the time now because I I spent ten years as a film critic, and so I saw a lot of movies, uh, uh, and you see how uh, 
a movie like The Exorcist will completely bring back the whole idea of, of possession, which was virtually dead in America until that film came out. Uh, and then the Amityville ho- uh, horror, so-called Amityville ghost, which sort of created, uh, you know, the Enfield poltergeist and things like that. And it's just, as soon as, you know, the, the influence of, of the media and the film and everything is is not to be underestimated. It's absolutely universal now. It's quite extraordinary to follow. And then the, so the ghosts that people are seeing or believe they're seeing um, are they are reflections. They're all almost always reflections of a of a wider cultural story. Is that is that fair? Yeah, and I'm going back to technology. The, that in in the 1890s, you've got this extraordinary period where. You could in Regent Street, where you could walk into a place and have an X-ray done, and people would just—they blew their minds. They could walk in front of a machine and see their bones moving, you know. And at the same time, it was more or less when the uh, the Lumiere, the first cinema, was being made. And there's like, there's this like sort of six months where X-rays, who were not immediately used for medical reasons, but for used for a while for very horrifically for. Uh, uh, um, entertainment purposes. There was a, a sort of brief six months where cinema and X-rays were right rival um, forms of entertainment. And you can see in sort of George Melia doing a sort of basically skeleton film as a result of the whole X-ray thing. And uh, uh, it, it, uh, it said, I put it in a footnote in, in my book, that apparently when they tested uh, Marie Curie, who, by the way, was a, an investigator, a ghost investigator in her spare time, um, they found evidence that her cancer and so forth was caused by X-rays and not by what the radium and so forth she worked on. So, yes, yeah, so that was how dangerous it was. But of course, also you get photographs, don't you? And so the the appearance of ghosts on photographs, yes, is and it's again as a big cultural thing. So quite early on, phot- photography was used as a way to debunk ghosts. Actually, to do debunk ghosts, look how easy it is to fake photographs. You know. And so there's this famous photograph of York Minster, the, ed- the facade of York Minster, and people moving out, and they would be very ghostly. And indeed, when, again, when the first uh, moving cinema was seen, it was considered to be, people remarked, there's a very famous review in Russia about how ghosts, all these people would be dead at one point, but yet they'd still be moving around. And people, and, and the whole idea of radio was so fantastically spooky the these voices coming out of the ether and the, and the idea of mental radio as a sort of adjunct was pretty quickly uh, and i i think uh, you know that lasted right up into the 60s the idea of mental radio so just to dip back into the 18th century again before we come back to the third great story i tell you one of the things that i found so f- surprising in your book was about methodism because mm. i'd never put methodism and ghosts together as sort of interlinked phenomena. But but John Wesley, am I right, was a great believer in ghosts. And belief in ghosts in the 18th century was a kind of a marker of being a Methodist. Now that, is that, have I got that right? Yes. Uh, I, I think when Boswell, talking of Dr. Johnson, was, was in Scotland and he mentioned about ghosts and and his his extremely aristocratic ghost said, "I fancy you are a Methodist." You know. <laughs> uh, uh, so you were talking about the class distinctions yes, in ghosts. Yes. So <laughs> even in the afterlife, the British class system. <laughs> uh, and of course, the Methodist and there was a Methodist uh, a clergyman involved with the Cock Lane ghost, and he was very much pushed it forward. 
Uh, and it's a sort of hangover of this sort of Joseph Glanville 1680s idea that even though ghosts were not God, they were a part of a supernatural process which ended up in God. So it was like a very crude domestic example of uh, supernatural and, and, and power. And uh, that was quite a powerful idea in the 1680s. It sort of fell out of fashion. And then the Methodists almost re- revived it. And they very, very, over the years, they kind of very quietly dropped it and pretended it never happened. But their, their founder, <laughs> uh, who was, of course, involved in, uh, well, he wasn't directly involved, but his family was involved in a famous poltergeist case again. Uh, and, uh, and he really, really thought, uh, that ghosts existed. And so, for example, I think the argument he'd used, oh, well, madam, you may not have seen a murder, but they've still, they've still happened whether you've seen it or not, you know. Uh, and that was weirdly his equivalence about murder. <laughs> um, right. But after, I mean, after the death of, of the Wesleys, um, I, they quietly, it was quietly dropped, but there was a very active belief that because of, you know, the Witch of Endor and things like that, that supernatural things were were part of a divine panelpy and showed that there was much more going on than the basic everyday life worries you know well roger obviously we're recording this in the dead of night but but <laughs> I, I sense that dawn is approaching and that cocks may soon be crowing and we will have to melt upon the coming of the sun but before that happens and on the subject of clergymen can we just talk about perhaps the most famous ghost story in England that involves a clergyman, which is the haunting of Borley Rectory, which in the children's book that I mentioned right at the beginning, which had the picture of uh, Athenodorus and the ghost in Athens, had a whole chapter on Borley Rectory with um, ghostly writing on the walls and white ladies and the rectory going up in flames. Mm. Uh, And I thought then that it was an incredibly odd story, but Mm. that was before I read your book (laughs) and I realised it was Odd to the power of 20. Yes. I mean, it's spectacularly odd story. So you can just sketch out what was going on in Borley Rectory, the most haunted house in Britain. It was, uh, so it's this house in a sort of, in North, in North Essex, uh, which was a rectory and it was, uh, built. So it's early 20th century. Right? Early 20th kind of, century. Yeah. So yeah. in, in sort of late Victorian times, uh, a Reverend Bull went there and he had a big family and his son took over the living. And what became, what was originally a rather nice house became slowly and slowly more decrepit. And by, by the sort of 1920s, they couldn't basically get everyone, anyone to live there. So you had to be a, a pretty low ranked clergyman to get the living there. And people went there and the people who went there, um, and it already had, it had an established, there was a nun that walked through the garden and the, the bull sisters. So there were sort of a, quite a few unmarried sisters who, who basically, Felt that the place was very haunted, and uh, and then it passed on. The living passed on to another man called Lionel Foster, and he he had this sort of there's no other way of saying it, a kind of crazy wife, and who was and there was possibly bigamy going on, and she adopted sons and then ab- children, then abandoned them, and then f- fled, and uh, and it was it's it's an absolute psychodrama, and Harry Price, the famous investigator went uh, basically hired it for six months and did almost like a closed uh, a very famous investigation using all you know absolute tip-top technology of the time 
Uh, and he was this famous ghost hunter who was a sort of very interesting character who uh, was basically a paper bag salesman who <laughs> wanted to be accepted by the, the, all the knobs at the SPR, and they all looked down on him. And so he went from being a sort of professional skeptic to a professional believer and because he realised that he could do better. He was just going to make money. There's more money in the belief, isn't there? Yeah, the so he, he, he famously said that pe- people prefer the, the bunk to the debunk. Um, <laughs> Um, and and so yeah, and so he he investigated it for a while, and there's there's a huge amount of interesting stuff. And again, very controversial. He appeared to study. Uh, he appeared to find all sorts of inexplicable events happening, sort of spontaneous fires and things like that. And, and then, eventually, sort of, come the end of the thirties, uh, the Church of England sort of sold it off, really, and. It was um it was bought by a black shirt, and because um who did you see of, that's the bit I didn't get in my children's it, <laughs> children's uh, case he, book. he used to do uh, black shirt village fates in the garden, and then it sort of caught fire. And there's a wonderful uh, woodprint of it in, in again one of my children's books of, of the rectory on fire, and you can see all the the ghostly figures in the flames. Uh, it's almost certain that he set it on fire as a kind of insurance thing. But, um, and then the ruins were haunted too. And there was a famous photograph of a floating brick. And I love that, that the original <laughs> photograph shows a, a floating brick, yes. but that was actually just a cropped version of another photograph in which you can see a builder yes, throwing, throwing bricks in the corner. <laughs> and so oh, Dominic, you, you and your relentless skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. It cost cost a lot of money to reproduce that picture. Yes. Um, from, from the Underwood estate. So, yes, but uh, again, it's sort of one of these sort of, um, and to this, to this day, you just get dozens of paranormal tourists just going there, camping out, sort of, uh, it, it, to the great bother often of the, of the locals who don't really necessarily like it. But, uh, and, and there was a dramatization on TV about it. So, uh, it, it, it's sort of sometimes in ghost stories, the people are much more interesting than the ghosts, and this is yeah. this is one of those <laughs> occasions. And, and Roger, am I right? I mean, I know in your book and, and in other interviews, you've sort of said you 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 don't really like the you you don't find it interesting the conversation about you know are ghosts real? Mm. Do you believe in ghosts and stuff? But but are there particular stories in the sort of English ghost tradition that you are drawn back to, and you think there's really something very spooky yeah they, uh, for me the Hinton one uh, uh because that is just so relentless and over such a long time and such good quality witnesses and there's always been a problem with witnesses uh, uh also a class issue with witnesses so until really the 1920s the society for psychological research wouldn't take um uh, wouldn't take reports from servants they just would not run them you know because they thought right. they were probably up to no good anyway so there was this huge issue, and and there there and there are quite a lot of incidents where a lot of hauntings were actually uh, problematic. So servants either getting in boyfriends and girlfriends, or you know, or stealing, or you know, or just taking out resentments on the on on their mistress and master. Um, but yeah, for me, the the Hinton one still it does give me the chills, definitely. Uh, and, but I, 
I think a lot of the best ghost things are probably not stories. They're just little incidents, you know. And, of course, yeah. we're in a culture that likes a beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, but actually, most ghost accounts you read are not a story and they never find out who who the ghost is or anything like that. Do you think there's anything um, – are 21st century ghosts emerging? And if so, is there anything distinctive about them, do you think? Yes, definitely. Uh, well, you're now getting ghost stories about uh, Zoom calls. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Ghost in the machine. Ghost in the machine and um, uh, people getting text messages from dead people, being, people being buried with their phones and carrying on sending text messages. Uh, yeah, my, well, that's my, a good one. My favourite one is Haunted Autocorrect. <laughs> um, how does that work uh it, instead of doing the obvious word it would say things like dead buried in cellar that sort of uh, <laughs> wow that, uh, but, i found that quite disturbing as somebody works spends every day staring at word documents well there's been a film recently too about and i think it's a lockdown ghost film and it's just about four people on a zoom call and it's a ghost story about what ha- happens to those people on the zoom call and it's been i haven't seen it yet myself but it's been very well received and a lot of those sort of Japanese horror, like Ring and everything like that, is all about um, surveillance cameras, that sort of thing. It's very much, we've very much gone back to technology. And one, one other question that occurs to me, you talk a lot in the book about national specificity. So there's a fantastic line you have, which I was dying to quote from the antiquarian Francis Groves, 18th century antiquarian. He says, dragging chains is not the fashion of English ghosts, chains and black vestments being chiefly the accoutrements of foreign spectres seen in arbitrary governments, <laughs> dead or alive, English spirits are free. Free. I found yes. that, I found that, I found that so cheering mm. and presumably post Brexit. Do you think English spirits will, will acquire more well, I think, sort of national specificity? Haven't they just dug up a Roman skeleton with manacles? Yeah, they did. Yes, in a ditch. And there was, right. and, yeah. I, and I saw that uh, that there was speculation from some archaeologists or historians that that may have been a way of staying them, uh, yeah. keeping them dead. I think that's the most popular theory. Yeah. Because the theory was initially that it's a slave and it may well have been a slave. Yeah. But it's, the fact that he's been chucked in the grave, you know, with the manacles on, which are quite expensive. Yes. Suggests that there is some attempt to stop him from roaming. Well, you sort of in, in, in you know, in Venice and there's a, a, a famous burial line in Venice and, and, and which was partly excavated and they, they would find people with stones in their mouths to stop them being vampires and, and weights being put on the dead. Uh, and it's, there, there's li- literally putting physical impediments. Uh, on the dead but yes i mean of course but dickens of course he's clanking chains for yeah uh, uh for you know christmas carol and made it very good now producer just sent me a text message that says um <laughs> european ghosts are covered in red tape not chains that tells you where a producer's coming from anyway um tom the coat the cock has crowed has it the cock has just crowed i think did you just did you just organize that on your computer as a sort of special sound effect no it's because obviously the cock outside <laughs> has woken up you've the done especially for roger he doesn't normally do this on the, the sun is coming and uh, i think that that we need to get away quickly before we fly away melt and dissolve yes. oh there it is again there you go eerie uh, Um, you wouldn't believe he's a grown man (laughs) (laughs) roger thank you so much that's been absolutely fantastic it's a pleasure um anyone who wants to know more um do check out his sensational book i mean i i saved it up for christmas but i think even in the dead of june it would um it would send a shiver down your spine yeah i read it i read it this weekend in a a blazing sunny day and i thought um 
I don't scare easily, Tom, mm-hmm. but I, I was absolutely fascinated. Um, I was really, I think it's such an interesting subject. And even, and the weird thing is, whether you believe in ghosts or not is completely immaterial, isn't it? Because ghosts are such a great window. They're literally onto, immaterial. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. I'm glad you spotted that. And on that such a great note, window onto the past. And on that right. note, thanks ever so much. Uh, we Thank will you, be Roger. back next week. Thank you to Roger. Thank you to listening. Uh, we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.